Come with me on an exploration of self-discovery. On this podcast, we decipher what really matters as we unravel the chaos of day-to-day work to learn how to build an essential life. Back by popular demand, we have Anna McEwen, uh, who, who, of course, is my wife, but also by far the most popular guest I have on the What's Essential podcast. Welcome again to the show. Is that true? It's true, but you don't deserve it to be true right now because you just did something very cruel to me, <laughs> which is that you you brought in a container of M&Ms. Um, and that wasn't, you know, like even as you put them on my desk, it wasn't like, oh, this is a this is a nice offering. It wasn't even, oh, here's a peace offering for you. This was, I don't want to eat any more of these, so you can. And that's what you did. And 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 it's working very well because I'm doing it. This is this is very wrong of you. Yes, it is. And you're almost 100% right. Um, actually, I was uh, gorging myself on dark chocolate covered peanut butter cups and I didn't want to be alone and so I brought in your great temptation and no but that's what I felt a little no, bit that's better that's even worse than you're making that out to be because what that means <laughs> and I didn't realize this until now is that you kept the good the good chocolate for yourself and brought me the fake false sugar that's why we still have them that that's why we still have them. you always buy me the chocolate covered the dark chocolate peanut butter cups. So I, I actually thought those were for me. Actually, they are but for you. Now no, I they know. are for you. But but the reason we still have these M&Ms, not that anybody listening to this has to agree with us because, you know, people have their things. But to me, just normal M&Ms, not peanut M&Ms. I mean, just normal M&Ms. Well, let's say it this way. I don't see them as essential. Yes, that might be the way I'd like to say that. I do have a little bit of of a beef with you, though, because you are the one who buys these treats, and I do not buy them because I know I really struggle to resist them. I'm not really taking responsibility, am I? Um, I'm blaming you completely. And and just building on that for a second, the payoff I get when I buy these things for you is instant (laughs) and very sincere. There is, in the moment... There is close to joy in you when I bring them to you. You 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 oh, feel true. loved. You feel taken care of. Um, but you saying you saying responsibility makes me think that uh, you're trying to help us get on subject because that that is what we want to talk about today. So this brings us close to the subject that is at hand, uh, which is the mindset of essentialism. It's made up of at least three major assumptions. Uh, and and without any of these three, essentialism is not even possible. Okay, so what are the three? Yes, they are. It's all important. It is all important versus only a few things matter. How can I fit in? I should probably say number two is how can I fit it all in versus what are the trade-offs? And number three, I have to versus I choose to. I have to eat the M&Ms you brought in. Yes. I have to eat the dark chocolate-covered peanut butter cups that Greg has bought me out of love and care. 
Oh. <laughs> I, I think, don't want the consequences. Well, this is, well, actually, that gets to the heart of it, isn't it? It's, I mean, that idea, you know, let's focus on the last one. Uh, the idea that I have to versus I choose to, there's other language I didn't have at the time I was writing essentialism, but it, it's better, which is to say instead of I have to, I choose to because, and then fill in the blank. So, mm. you know, I choose to, I don't know how far we can go with this M&M strategy, but, but I choose to eat these because, you know, they're here in front of me. Okay, uh, I'm giving yeah. this a shot. I choose to eat this dark chocolate covered peanut butter cup because I'm tired. I want a reward for all of my hard work. And I know that this shot of sugar is going to give me some quick dopamine. And uh, yeah, I might be slightly addicted. Is that a good answer? <laughs> well, I, I like it because what, what it does once you start answering the question of why you're doing something, I choose to do it because you can test your hypothesis. You can think about it. You can, you can replace it. You can do something where you simply say, I have to, it's, it's like the end of your inquiry. So well, why are you doing that? Why do you, oh, I just have to, I have to go to that meeting. It's the end of a conversation rather than the beginning of it. So I choose to because allows you to start exploring what the real reasons are. And you don't get to just excuse yourself because of some mysterious, undefined uh, cause that's making you do it as if you aren't an agent in your own life. So I think that's I think that's what's at the heart of this. When I think more deeply about the subject, it takes me back to a story I remember learning from uh, Phil Zimbardo. Dun, dun, dun. Now, yes. the story that made Phil Zimbardo famous, as you know, Anna, is the Stanford Prison Experiment, which was... Uh, a role play um, and a simulation. I mean, it was. It's a bit unthinkable now. It, it it wouldn't. It wouldn't be possible now. And I don't suppose it was really fully allowed even back then. But it was held at Stanford University. It's the summer of 1971. It was intended to examine the effects of situational variables on participants' reactions and behaviors. It, it was a two-week simulation of a prison environment, randomly assigned. Some people were guards and some people were inmates. And what they found within a ridiculously short period of time is that the guards became brutal, controlling, willing to use intimidation, compulsion, and all sorts of awful uh, tactics and strategies to keep these students, uh, these inmates now, in their place uh, and and completely subservient. It was a shocking experiment on so many levels. Everybody involved in it could have just at any point at all walked away and just gone, well, no, I don't want to be part of this experiment anymore. The inmates could have done it. The guards could have done it. And they didn't. Once they had been given the rules of the role play, they just went along with it and on it went to the How point of- How long did it go? 
The experiment was scheduled to last one to two weeks, but ultimately had to be terminated on only the sixth day of the experiment because it all escalated out of hand when the prisoners were forced to endure cruel and dehumanizing abuse at the hands of their peers. Wow. It's such a crazy story. But here's what Phil said to me that I thought was really especially interesting is that the only person in the entire experiment from beginning to end who actually raised a concern to him about this not being ethical, this not being right, was his girlfriend. Everybody else involved went along with it. You might say, well, I wouldn't capitulate to that. But the data does not support that. To put yourself, for example, in Nazi Germany, and to say to yourself, as I think most of us do, if we had been there, we would not have gone down that road. We would not have supported. You know, we'd have been Schindler. We want that to be true. And it's, it's certainly much easier for us to imagine ourselves in that heroic role. But the probability that that is true is infinitely small. We, we, you know, statistically, we would have been with the oppressors, not standing up against them. And so maybe this all seems overly dramatic, but, but to me, it is a vitally important idea to remember our ability to choose, but also, I mean, for us as, as parents, uh, for uh, for for any role as a leader, to be able to help other people develop and remember their ability to choose and to be able to choose even if it's not popular and even if it's not what everyone else is doing and all the rest of it. Okay, your thoughts? The one that comes to the forefront is it's so important to know why we're doing things. Um, hmm. I'm going to really, you know, draw upon my experience as a mom. That's where I've been living the past 18 years and it's really easy to do what everyone else is doing. I think it's tempting just to do that uh, in our daily lives and um in parenting and such just to unknowingly just flow with the culture. And, and I want to build on that for a second, because I yeah. think you're so right about that. We want, and the data supports this, we want to go with the crowd. And that's completely different orientation towards decisions than to go, let's say, with your conscience, regardless of what the crowd is doing. And I can pay you a compliment on this, because I think you are much, much better at this than the you know, the average person and better than me at it too. I, I see in you this, um, let's say, inflexibility around doing things just because other people are doing them. If like you really have to wrestle it down for yourself to say, does this seem the right thing for me? Does this seem the right thing for my family? And if other people are doing it, something different, well, fine for them, but I'm not going to compete 
in a race that I'm not even interested in running in the first place. Well, thank you. I mean, that is high praise. Um, I want things to have a purpose. So coming back to the original point that it's so important to know the why, the why of why we are doing things, the why of the choices we're making. Uh, That phrase you gave in the beginning, Greg, of I choose to because. And now let's just take a moment for an ad break. And now back to our conversation. Yes, I choose to because to work to get clear on the why you're really doing something and not the why that you would put on a, a billboard or or put on a vision statement or a mission statement, not, not for other people, but to get honest about this, to at least not lie to yourself about why, so that you can better navigate the choices you're making. This pressure to go with the crowd is so deeply human, but I do also see it as especially intense right now because the amount of voices that you hear, just the crowd in social media, for example, is so loud. FOMO is so strong. And so if you're not careful, if you outsource your the executive function of your thinking to all of these other voices and the loudest voices and the most critical voices and the angriest voices and, and the most judgmental voices, I mean, all of that that can make up the, the raucous um, voices of the web, then then you're not going to be able to actually get guidance from inside uh, and and I mean I'm dealing with this right now as I continue to work on this next book because the temptation I have is to is to ask lots of other people people I trust people who are smart people who are thoughtful even people who have my best interests at heart so you know, in a sense, it's a good group of people to go to. Well, and it's a good practice to to reach out to those you trust. I mean, you process things in conversation. That's a very useful and productive form of exploration for you. But I understand what you're saying, that ultimately, you're the one who makes the choice. You're the one who lives with the consequence. You're the one who is writing the book. Well, so you better have a why and really uh, know what you're about. Well, why am I going to those people? I choose to go to these people because I want their input and insight to make the ideas better. Is that really why? Or am I going to them in this particular moment because I don't want to take responsibility for this decision? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think another reason that... um we sometimes look outward is because we're afraid. Uh, we're afraid that this uncharted territory, not going with the flow, is uh, is unsafe, is going to produce the consequences that we don't want. Nobody else is doing it, so there's probably a reason no one else is doing it. Um, there's a reason everyone is doing this other thing. Gandhi wrote 
that a no uttered from the deepest conviction is better than a yes merely uttered to please or worse, to avoid trouble. And I think that there is something inspirational in that for all of us, that that we get honest about why we're doing something. And if it's simply to please, it's not a good enough reason. And if it's simply to avoid trouble, that might be a worse reason. And that doesn't mean we should do things to cause trouble. Of course, that's ludicrous too. But that we get back to deep convictions within ourselves that we feel are right, regardless of what other people say, regardless of what else is going on around us, to take responsibility for the choices that we're making. Yeah, I love that quote from Gandhi. And it it makes me wonder how unintentionally we do that as parents to our children, that we kind of train them or condition them to utter that yes, just to please. And and I get it. I mean, we we want to teach our children to be responsible, to be, to turn their assignments in on time. Those those are good skills and the right skills to learn. But a few years ago, I listened to a a, a speaker, Madeline Levine. I think is how you say her last last name. She wrote The Price of Privilege, and she talked about the difference between uh, youth in this modern day versus I want to say in the fifties or 60s. And uh, the one of the biggest differences she noticed was that uh, youth today really want to please their parents. Uh, they're less autonomous. Um, back then, they were ready to get out of the house and make their own way in the world. And now uh, their biggest fear is uh, to disappoint their parents. And so I think it's just important to nurture the power of choice in your own family. And that can start with toddlers and giving them choices as much as possible. I think they're happier anyway. They feel more um, connected to you when you're like, oh, hey, do you, should we leave in five minutes or should we leave right now? Or do you want the orange slices or apple slices for your lunch, you know, or with your lunch? And uh, just giving them choices, it probably sounds really silly and unnecessary, but it's, I think it's really valuable to their uh, ability to choose and, and the things that you learn about them, the relationship that you foster. Uh, and then as they grow older, uh, recognizing that, uh, trusting that our children do have an internal compass, that they do uh, have the ability to choose a path that might be different than than what we've planned out for them, <laughs> and to to allow some space to discuss those types of things. There's lots of roads to good schools. Uh, there's not just one path, and I know that's probably speaking to a particular group of. Uh, of parents of high, you know, highly academic focused on that. But, um, but I, I think there's such value, uh, in exploring that with our children, allowing them the space to, to choose for themselves, starting while they're, uh, while they're with us. If we're not careful as parents, we can get into all the coddling as teachers, we create this very structured, organized, um, sometimes confusing educational experience 
then someone's on a race to get to college to get a job and and this is the race to nowhere that you're referencing you suddenly get into your mid 30s or whatever and you just don't what am i even supposed to be doing like how did i even get here and 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 the the why of what you're doing has been skipped it's all just been checking a box to get to the next thing to get to the next thing instead of what really is my why uh, I love what you're saying there. Okay, so help us to bring this all together, Anno. Give us a final thought that helps to wrap together this theme of having the mindset necessary to be an essentialist by focusing on choosing to do things because instead of just, I have to do them. What I'm going to take away from this conversation and I welcome anyone else who wants to do it as well. I'm going to really ask myself why I'm doing what I'm doing in my life. I'm going to look at my choices that I've already made, maybe the commitments that we're already doing and the choices that I make in the day-to-day and and really think about the why behind it. Mm. I choose to do this because... Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I always feel enlightened by the conversations. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to spend a few uninterrupted minutes with you. (laughs) Uh, And thank you, everybody who's listening to the show again today. Really, thank you for listening to the What's Essential podcast, for choosing to be here because you want to live a more essential life, because you want to do those things that matter most and to make those things that matter most as easy as possible so that you can do them. Thank you for being on the journey through this whole uh, What's Essential adventure from the middle of the pandemic when we created the show with no audio to speak of. The world is falling apart or at least it felt like it was. And thank you for being a part of it. I would encourage you to think of someone who might find today's conversation useful and share this podcast with them. Uh, If you want to continue to build the momentum of this show is to go and write a review on Apple iTunes. You can write a review in literally one minute, but it's disproportionately important because it's key to being able to bring in the best guests to be on this show. To show my appreciation, I am selecting one person every month at random from the comments that are shared to receive an annual membership to the Essentialism Academy. Again, thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. 
Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.